scarf. Um, what I like about being in the adult Sunday class is I can make mistakes and nobody you know, laugh or give me a hard time. I appreciate being here today. I really appreciate it. Um, good to see everybody here. So uh, having said that, you can take your song books and go. <laughs> All right, so maybe we'll laugh anyway. <laughs> no, first, take our Bibles. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. So much for not laughing. Yeah, I'm just messing. I told my wife I'm going to practice that, and she goes, they're not going to get you humor. I said, oh, no. There's going to be one or two people going to get my humor. That's why I brought Ed and Roxanne in here today. So they can give me some backup. So anyways, 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. Um, I want to kind of go through the whole, the whole book this morning, kind of quick, uh, recap it up to at least to chapter number 13. And I want to do is kind of give a quick recap but my, my title for this is, How to Love Our Church More. How fitting, right? Because next week is I Love My Church Sunday. And I believe everybody does love our church. If anyone does not love our church, get out. Just kidding. But I think everybody here loves our church. And I think we just sometimes, even with our marriages, with our families, we all love our families and love our churches. We just Sometimes we don't, we, we, we don't know how to love more. You know, without raising your hand, I think we could all say, that's me. I want to know how I can love it more. And sometimes it's like, hey, is it, do I have to give more? Do I have to do more? Do I have to be faithful more? What is it that I'm supposed to do to show more love? The Corinthian church was a mess. <laughs> it was a complete mess. When my, my first church I pastored, I pastored in upstate New York. It was in a little town called Porter Corners. It was in the proper, was outside of a little town called Corinth. I, Timothy, pastored the church at Corinth. <laughs> and boy, I tell you, when I got there, the church had problems. I do not recommend anybody having their first church at Corinth. And I can tell you what, there was problems. And I can tell you, going through that and just being my first church, I realized there is no perfect church. Now, there was a perfect pastor. No, but I mean, there's no perfect pastor either. But I can tell you, going through, I learned a lot from that first church. And that church learned a lot from me, and they learned how much they appreciated the pastors they've had. But I'm uh, going for the first Corinthians chapter number 8. In all seriousness, I'll get started here. The Bible says this in the first three verses, and it's interesting I'm going through this to kind of show how to love our church more, but it starts off with a kind of a weird touch. It's talking about giving things, giving to idols. I'm going to put my phone over here just so I can reference it where it's at. I can see that, kind of. But it says here, Now as touching things offered unto idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think he hath, he, that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. <laughs> That's encouraging. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. By the way, now nah, I won't get to that. Verse number three. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to speak your word. And Lord, I don't take it lightly. And I just pray, Lord, that what you've given me, Lord, for more your word, Lord, that I can edify the saints, Lord, that I can exalt you. And if there's anybody here that does not you know you, Lord, that they can be saved today. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be attentive to your word. Help me, Lord, to speak clearly. And I thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Again, the Corinthian church had a lot of issues, as all, as all churches do. These, are some, these issues were unchecked, uncorrected, and because of that, they were uncalled for. Any mature Christian would know it was wrong. To, they saw this all through. Any, any Christian could look at this and say, well, this was wrong. 
But Paul had to refer to them as carnal because they were not, they were as babes and not as mature Christians. If you would, keep your place here in, in Corinthians. We're going to come back, we're, like I said, we're going to go through the entire book. But go, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 5. This is one of my favorite passages. I remember when I was reading through the Bible, my first time ever I can think of as a teenager, I came across this passage, and boy, I just absolutely loved it. And of course, you know, not being the most spiritual as I am now, I, I decided I was never going to drink milk again. Because the Bible says in this passage, I don't need milk. And I was like, cereal without milk is kind of bad. So had that problem. But it says here in verse number 12, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, this is talking about Christ and the thing that shadows and types of Christ in the Old Testament, right? It says in verse number 12, for when, uh, for when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which, shall, which be the first principles of the oracles or the words, the things of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Right. So you're not able to handle meat. You're kind of like you're you're spiritually um, you're not growing in the Lord. You're kind of you're, you're you're backwards. You're not able to grow. Verse number 13 for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. It doesn't mean that if you keep to the simple things of Christ, the simplicity that's in Christ is that you're unskillful. But if that's all, you know, is the simple things you've never gone on in your Christian life. And he says this and he says in verse number 13, for everyone that, is, that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or carnal. Okay? For, um, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those by, um, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. There's a lot of people that don't know good and evil because they've never been challenged to think. And when they are challenged to think, well, it's not, it's not, it's above my pay grade. That's not for me to know. The Church of Corinth had this whole problem where it was like, well, it's not for me to decide. And Paul's like, it is for you to decide. Are you all babes? Are you all carnal? He says in one passage, you had to come with, at you with a rod, with a stick. Do I have to spank you as a child? Are you not able to discern right from wrong? What is wrong with you? And this is Paul speaking very sternly to a church that seemed to have fruits and knowledge, and they seemed to, they, they, they divided themselves over the most ridiculous things. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number one briefly. We're going to go quickly through, these, through these, uh, these, these chapters and find out all that they did. And I lost my place in 1 Corinthians. That was not good. But it says here in chapter one, I'll kind of go quickly. Number one, if you kind of, if you think about going through the titles and headings, I read, I, I, I did this New Testament challenge in 31 days, and it was basically 8.38 chapters a day for the month of January. And I've done it before, but I've never had to do it when I worked a full-time job. I always did it when I was a pastor. Well, you know, pastors don't anything but sit in air-conditioning houses and only have to work one day a week, you know? No, but as, you know, I've always, you know, I've always been a bivocational pastor, always had to work and everything, but having to focus on work and not, you know, it's like, wow. It was like really hard to stay at it. And I, I took one day, I think there's two days I got behind on my scripture reading. And it was in Revelation. I read 1,007 years <laughs> in two days. It was like Star Wars. It was unbelievable. 
But, but in chapter 1, we read this. It says there's divisions and doctrinal authority. In chapter, if you can think of chapter 1, there is divisions and doctrinal authority. Whose authority do we really have? I am of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Who is who? And there's such doctrinal divisions within a church. Look, the church ought to have one doctrinal authority, and that's the Word of God. The sole authority is the Word of God. And I know there's, there's arguments of what, how you know, different people have different interpretations of authority. Some say final authority. And I know what they're saying by that, but when I look at the word final in the dictionary, final means at the end of the day, this is the authority that we'll have to answer to when everything else is settled away, when all the other arguments are settled, this is what we'll have to agree on. Is what, that's what final means. Well, sole authority means... I'll say, forget everybody else. This is the authority I have from the get-go. So if Tim DeLello doesn't match up with Scripture, Tim DeLello's wrong. Amen. That was way too quick. <laughs> but, it's like, but it's like, if I go, so when, so when we do a lot of times with our church, with churches in general, with Christians in general, is that we'll get up and we'll say, well, this person has a lot of good points, and I disagree with him. The Bible disagrees with him a lot on points, but he makes a good point. So you know what? We'll take the good and take the bad, and yeah, it's good. We'll take the good and bad from it. The Word of God is the sole authority. And so when we look at this, the, the divisions in doctrinal authority, and by the way, when we start dissecting the Word of God to fit what we believe, rather than taking what we believe to fit the Bible, that's where isms and schisms and denominations come from. So we got to make sure our, our doctrine is based on the Word of God. So how can we love our church more? Well, make sure our doctrine is based on the Word of God, night and then. Number, chapter number two, we find that there's divisions in preaching styles. I grew up thinking that bombastic preaching was the only way to go. You know, bless God, popping the pulpit and kicking microphone stands and swinging from the chandelier, bless God. And if it wasn't hellfire damnation, it's not preaching, amen. And I grew up thinking that was the only way of preaching. When the preacher got up and preached and he was like teaching and expounding on the word of God and verse by verse and chapter by chapter, it was just like, this guy's boring. But when Paul came to Corinth, he said, I didn't come with the excellency of speech. I came preaching Christ and him crucified. Well, where did Paul come from when he came, when he came to Corinth? And he spent 18 months, the longest he stayed anywhere. The longest he stayed anywhere in his missionary journeys was in Corinth. And you know where he had just came from? Acts 17 on Mars Hill debating with all the stuffed head, knowledgeable intellectuals. And he was like, what, what's the purpose of being able to teach and study with deep theology? I'm just going to preach Christ and Him crucified. And at the end of the day, what greater thing can we know than Christ and Him crucified? There's such simplicity in Christ. Amen. I mean, great knowledge in Christ. The, the, the knowledge that Christ could cruise. We could study salvation until we're blue in the face and we we'll still won't scratch the surface of the knowledge of God. But there was such like division in preaching styles. I remember I was, I was pastoring in New York and this, this kid just would just fall asleep in church every time I turned around. Fold his arms. He sat in the second row, just kind of fold his arms, slunch down and fall asleep every sermon. We get past the song service, and I, I like to sing. I like to sing out. I'm not exactly a quiet singer. And the guy, he just, you know, he's like, sometimes, 
Anyways, so he was like, he just purposely fell asleep. And I was like, I've got to stop this. I tried icy hot in the nose. I tried everything I could to get this kid to wake up. Couldn't do anything. So one Sunday, I just preached like hot and heavy, jumping pews, kicking mic stands, doing everything I could. He sat up. That was awesome. You want to preach like that every time? I'm sweating. I'm hoarse. It's great, Matt. I'm glad you appreciated it. What did I preach on? I don't know, but it was awesome. Look, the preaching styles had got so divided where like, I would, if I hear that so-and-so is preaching, I'm not going to be there that night because I don't like his preaching style. The Bible says in Ephesians that God gave some preachers, some prophets, some teachers. For what? For the perfecting of the saints. So even within the church, there was that division. We ought to look forward to hearing different people's what they teach, what they've studied on, what they've prepared for the church. And we had to desire that. I tease pastor a lot. I tease pastor all the time because I love him. But I love teasing him all the time. And like a couple of weeks ago, he preached like a hot, you know, red hot fiery sermon in the introduction. And then he prayed and he went ice cold. I'm like, what are you doing? What you're so fired up? What'd you do? And I was like, this is messing with a little bit. But but we find that out. We got to make sure that the demonstration that we preach, though, is not, is make sure it's a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. So make sure it's not in our intellectual ideas or understanding. Make sure it's that of Christ. Number three, chapter three, there is envy and strife and division. The Bible says over in, um, I want to say it's James chapter three. You might have to read it, but it's James chapter three. It talks about the wisdom that's from the earth, that's sensual, devilish. It talks about division, envy, strife, and division. That's what the earthly, that's the earthly wisdom, right? That's what the earthly wisdom gives. But the heavenly wisdom is, it says that it's gentle, it's, it's, it's peaceable, it's easy to be entreated. It's, you know, it's, that's, that's the stuff we're supposed to seek after. And you find, so if you go to a church and it's always just like, it's like eh, I'm in the wrong church. <laughs> Something's wrong here. And if we find ourselves doing that, if you come to church and you find people, okay, maybe they're just having a bad day and they're in the flesh. So remember, was, remember the last time you were in the flesh? And just give them a pass. We'll get to that in a minute. But remember the last time you came to church that way? And pray for them. And make sure you don't come to church that way again. You know what I mean? Because it's easy for us to pull the moat out of Ed's eye. Because he's, boy, I'm telling you what. But we ought to make sure we don't do that. But the Bible says that God builds the church. In chapter 3, they're debating who built the, who is building the church. You know, who it is. The Bible talks about the foundations that were built. Who built the church? Well, the Lord builds the church. We're co-laborers. I wrote this down. It's kind of funny. We, we, all, we, are all, we all accomplish building the church because it's of the master builder. I remember helping build this wall at church and one of the buildings we were building and helping do some um, repairs and whatnot. And we had to put up sheetrock. And at the end of the day, the sheetrock, you know, we painted it, made it look really nice. Okay. At the end of the day, the drywall that was put up would look kind of silly if the drywall thought it was holding the wall up. But that's what we do when we think that we have built a church. When the pastor gets up, well, I built this church for my ground up. Well, the deacon's like, oh, I've done this. Well, the church members saying, well, I've, passed, I've had this church for years, and if anybody thinks you're going to change it. Think about this. The drywall is boasting that it built the wall, or it's holding the wall up, when it's the foundation, it's the weight distribution, 
the nails, the spacing, the footer, the header, the trusses, the two by fours behind it, the mud tape and screws. But yet the drywall is all it's seen. But what's really doing the work? Right? And really, Christ is the master builder because we can have all the supplies, but Christ is the one that assembles it. And the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable, right? And it gives us what is profitable. And he says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work, right? So it says that it's there for us and he fits us exactly how it's supposed to be as he is the master builder. So a lot of times church, this, this church in Corinth in chapter three, we're fighting even on whose foundation, who built the church, who founded the church. Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. I'm glad I didn't do any of that. Boys, I wanted to be of Christ crucified. Chapter 4, we find out questioning godly authority. Well, what authority is what? And they, constantly, Paul's question, Paul was constantly defending his apostleship. Well, Paul, are you really qualified to be an apostle? Who ordained you to be an apostle? Are you really qualified to be an apostle? Do you meet all the qualifications to be an apostle? To be an apostle? Are you really qualified? And he's constantly defending all through First and Second Corinthians. He's defending his apostleship. How ridiculous. The guy wrote 13, 13 arguably 14 books of the Bible. And they're arguing whether or not he was qualified to be an apostle. And he saw Christ Jesus. He, he, was, he was a witness of the resurrection. And it's like, you're arguing. But he, the, the argument is there. But yeah, there's still argument. Like, you know, we don't, we don't have to argue. I'm glad we don't. I don't think anybody here argues the, the scriptural authority of pastor being the authority of the church. But there's always that one or two that still argue the pastor, usually not openly, it's usually on the telephone. And I'm glad we don't have that problem here. Thankful for that. Or social media. Thank God for that. But chapter number five, we find out there's people not dealing with, they were, in, they were not dealing or they were indifferent towards open, gross sin. Really? Like, he was like, are you carnal? You don't see this problem? So number, chapter number six, there's division. There is ought in the church, carnality and, and civility and open court. He says, you can take the least esteemed by newest believer and put him in between the two problems and they can figure out the solution. He's not saying Christians should never go to court. He said, you shouldn't have to go to court. You really shouldn't have to go to court. This is so simple to figure out. But there's such division. And he's like, you're carnal. You should be able to decide this. To decide this. Number, so you, lead, you see this going through, chapter number six. Oh, there's also divisions of legalism against lawfulness and against loose living or lasciviousness. If I could say this, there's battles about extremism. And that's a battle we find today. There's a battles about extremism, right? So I, I don't drink caffeine. I, I'm not saying you can't have caffeine. I don't drink caffeine. Why? Because I was enslaved to caffeine. I was very much addicted to caffeine. I went a spell about 18 years ago. I was very much addicted to caffeine, and I didn't have caffeine for 36 hours, and I was just a monster. And when I realized that I was given to, to caffeine, I repented. I, Lord, I'm so sorry, forgive me. And, and Lord, I said, Lord, I'll never purposely take another sip of caffeine ever again. Everything was fine until last week. We're out door knocking with Preston and Mateo. And my daughter and I, and we went to Smiley's Pizza, and the waitress came out and brought me a regular coffee. I thought I was having AFib again. I thought my heart was racing. I thought I was going to die. 
And I'm like jittering. I'm, I'm like, what's going on? Like, you know, and she's like, oh, I, this, and the guys for, you know, she says, would you like more coffee? I said, Shh, I don't know. I said, and she goes, would you want regular decaf? I said, decaf. She goes, I'm sorry. I gave you regular. I'm like, well, thank you. <laughs> I never have purposely put caffeine to my lip ever since. But I'm not saying it's against for you to have caffeine, but I know a lot of preachers that get up and say, thou shall not have caffeine, or any other thing towards that, right? So there's extremism on other view, but there's a lot of people who get up and speak with, speak with such extremism, extremism towards things that God has not been absolute about. Like, have you seen like Mennonite, Amish, and then English folk, right? We, I'm not attacking any one of the camps. I'm just saying there's people who have extremist views. Right? So the easy solution to that is this. Does this glorify God or does it gratify me? That's the easy solution, right? So I want to get to this real quick, but I want to keep on going. So going into chapter number six, chapter number seven, talks about divorce, remarriage, you know, um, people who've been, who are widows, um, people who are widows and people who have lost their spouses, that's widows, um, eunuchs in the church, um, things like that. Chapter number eight talks about about knowledge being puffed up. Now, here's the definition of charity. There's a word in the English language that's called polysemy. It means there's many different definitions of the same word or symbol. Right? For instance, we look at, we look at the rainbow. We say, hey, it's a sign the symbol of God's promise. The world looks at the rainbow. They take away a color, and they mean something totally different. We look at the rainbow and says, God punishes sin, and God remembers us. The world looks at a rainbow and says, God has no problem with my sin, and God won't punish us. That's not what the rainbow means, right? So, there's, so having said that, there's a definition of the word charity that if, we, like if I just kind of give a brief definition of the word charity, how many of us, and don't raise your hand, but how many of us would ever think of the word charity just simply means love? We've already heard demonstrated charity means love or love in action. We've heard that before, right? or charity like Goodwill or Salvation Army. But the word charity is actually down in the list of definitions. By the way, if you get a good dictionary, like the Webster, Webster's 1828 or one line, dictionary.com, you can see more definitions and look for, an, look for extended definitions. And the definition of the word charity is this definition. It actually fits the context of the word charity in the Bible. It's number six, it's candor. I didn't have to go to the Greek or, he Greek or Hebrew. I just have to go to the English language and know English to understand the Bible. Isn't that cool? Amen. It says this, liberality and judging of men and their actions. A disposition in which, um, I can't read it. In which inclines men to think and judge favorably and put the best construction of words and actions which, the, and which, um, which will admit. It's the highest exercise of charity is charity towards the uncharitable. That is a really good definition of charity. It's how we're supposed to judge one another's actions. Now, when you think about that, charity, puff, you know, knowledge puffeth up, but charity, right? It says knowledge puffeth up, but charity is, you know, that's where we're supposed to have charity. So go back to chapter eight, so I can misquote it. It says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. So knowing how to deal with people, that edifies. So how do I love my church more? In 10 minutes, I'm going to give you a shotgun approach. Right? I mean, this is actually the message. So having said that, charity, the knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Knowledge puffeth up because it provokes us, it proves us, and it protects us. Because without proper knowledge, we don't know what's right or wrong. 
and it proves us, it tells us whether we're right or wrong, but it also provokes, provokes us to do right and wrong. Without knowledge, we're kind of just, we're in trouble. We've got to have knowledge. But without charity, knowledge prohibits our compassion, it prevents our care, and it perverts our, our church fellowship. Because we can have all the knowledge and have no love, what's the purpose of it? You've got to have balance. You've got to have both. God doesn't condemn knowledge. He tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You've got to have the fear of God. You've got to have knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That's what happened. No, right. But on this, so without charity, I am nothing. The Bible says without charity, I'm nothing. So what is a good definition of charity? Well, it's, it's again, it's that highest exercise charity toward, you know, charity or knowing how to take care of people against those who have no charity, right? How to identify, how to communicate with people, how to get along with people. It's candor, it's decorum, it's how to know how to get along with one another. The Bible says that we know how to behave ourselves in the house of God. So we need these, we need to have that. So, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's skip ahead to chapter 13. Again, 1 Corinthians is a book of how to fix things within the local church. It's not taking care of things outside the local church. Nothing written in 1 Corinthians is fixing things that are in the world. Nothing is written about the world. It's about fixing things within the church. So when we look at charity, it's not talking about how to fix in the world. The world's a mess. Only Jesus can fix the mess in the world. But it's not for us to fix the world, it's for us to fix the church. Judgment must first begin in where? The house of God. We've got to judge ourselves, right? So it's got to be within us. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, how do we have it? Without charity, even if we speak with tongues, verse number, verse number 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. By the way, that's not speaking in tongues like some kind of jibber-jabber, Right. What it's talking about is like languages, speaking with different diverse languages. Pastor Rice speaks at least Spanish and arguably a little bit of Italian, right? A little bit of sarcasm and a lot of English, right? Some hillbilly. But so he speaks with tongues of men, but if he has that what does speaks with no with no charity, he's puffed up, right? So without tongues, without languages, that's a gift, by the way. Tongues was a gift. Some people can study languages really easy and they can pick them up really easy. That's a gift that God gives. The gift of prophecy, able to preach and have insight of what's happening. Do you know what happens to you if you have great insight, be able to preach and be able to identify what's happening in the world and without charity? Do you know what you are? You're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Get yourself a tinfoil hat. <laughs> no, just kidding. But number three, Un, um, understand hidden things of God. That's another thing that we have here in verse number in, in this passage. You can understand the hidden things of God. It's a great insight into God's word. You become a know-it-all without charity. All these things come with charity. Having all knowledge, being well-studied, being well-educated, and not an imbecile, not being empty-headed, right? These are all things, but having not charity not knowing how to use it or when to use it, how to communicate to edify the body of Christ, it's useless, it's pointless. But having, so it's, it's um, there's, you know, there's no Jeopardy game in heaven. How many of you watch Jeopardy? All right, so I'm sorry. Who is who watches Jeopardy? So, but um, a man of, so you could have a man or a man or a woman of great faith, but have no charity, it's useless. We have nothing without charity. 
we become ineffective, we become, we have, we're not effective, we're not beneficial, we're just noisy. The Bible says, I become as sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. We're just noisy. It's like a kid playing on the drums or playing on, on cymbals without any skill. Cling. I have this syndrome, I don't know what it's called, I think it's called normal. I have a hard time hearing dishes bang, slurping, chewing of gum, slobbering, anything. I can't hear that loud, I can't be around it, I can't. My kids will be eating cereal and the bowl hitting the spoon or the spoon hitting the bowl. Well, I can't. I, I have my door shut. I got ear, my gun, my gun, my, my handgun range earmuffs on. I'm like, Aah! I can't hear it. I just can't. But the Bible says without charity, that's what we sound like to the world around us. You know, I was out, we were out door knocking last week and this guy answered the door and I was like, hey, we're out from, from Anchor Baptist Church. He's oh, I don't go to church. I've been hurt by too many Christians. And at first I was like, oh, so you've never been hurt by Walmart? Yeah. <laughs> you've never been hurt by the doctor? You've never been hurt by anyone? I'm like, then my first response was like, I'm the problem he's got. There are Christians who have hurt this guy because they say that they have all the knowledge of the Lord and have not charity. And God did a work in my heart for like 13 seconds, so I squashed it, went to the next house. But, it was like, but I was like, religion or being religious without charity is unprofitable. Having charity and not being charitable, or sorry, having charity and being charitable are not the same thing. By the way, do you know who I can tell two of the people in this church who are the greatest Christians I've ever met? Pastor and Mrs. Rice. They have charity. All right, anyways. Settling in, get it there. All right. Anyways, but it says even this passage, it says, look at verse number two. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. He says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, um, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity, so this is, even, though, even if I suffer for Christ's sake, even if I become a martyr for Christ's sake, it profiteth me nothing. Even if I, even if I um, so, you know, get a door slam in my face for Jesus, even if I die a horrible death as a martyr, and I don't have charity, it profits me nothing. I could bestow all my goods to the poor, which is charitable, and have not charity. It's nothing. There's a lot of things that we as a church do that we go through the motions. And I know this because we're human. I know this because we're Christians. I know this because we're flesh and blood. There's a lot of things that we do that we could always improve upon. So how can we love our church more? Is have more charity. So what are some charity, so what are some things that charity does? It suffers long. It's not bitter. It doesn't have a countdown of days and hope for retaliation. It's like, Lord, how oft shall a brother offend me? Till seven times seven? Seven times seven is 49. <laughs> 46, John. <laughs> 46. Three more times, John, I just put to the moon. No. And Jesus says, no. Till 70 times seven. Oh, more math. Oh, yes. <laughs> It doesn't have a total retaliation. It's kind. 
It envieth not. It doesn't desire to have a quality of, this is interesting. The definition of envy means to desire to have a quality, a possession, or other desirable attribute belonging to someone else. I've always thought, okay, it's not good to envy. Pastor's got a car. Cool. I want that car. I wish I had that car. How many of us have always thought envy is being a possession? Oh, but there's more definition. It's also attribute or quality. Being patient. My wife is patient. I wish I had patience. No, I don't. <laughs> She's got to put up with me to have patience. <laughs> no, but as a, that's a quality that we're not supposed to be envious of. How many times do we say, oh, I wish I had that quality or that trait? Well, that's envious. The Bible says we're not supposed to be envious. God gave you what you have, and you're not supposed to be envious about what God gave another person. Ouch! This chapter we read about love at weddings is not about love. It's about charity getting along with people at church. That's the context of 1 Corinthians, right? Man, I've got to stop preaching on myself. Vaunteth not itself. I'm glad I don't have this problem. <laughs> it doesn't boast or praise itself. I don't have this problem, right? But it doesn't boast itself up. It doesn't praise. I was being sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic there. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let a man praise thee, and not your own lips. It says, Let a stranger praise you. Someone you don't know. Someone who's never met you. We have friends who pat us in the back all the time. Pastor Jacobs is always patting in the back. He just, he's a pat in the back kind of guy. He's just a great guy. Nice, always patching the back. But I can tell you something. Having someone else patching the back that you never know before. That's a different story, isn't it? Usually people step me in the back with a knife. You know, so, but... If, doesn't behave itself unseemly. It's never inappropriate, unacceptable. It seeketh not her own. It doesn't promote her own agenda. It's not easily provoked. It's, it's always peaceable. It's entreatable. It thinketh no evil. It, it doesn't manipulate. It's, it's not manipulative. It's, it, it doesn't keep a record. It's either forgiven or given to God to handle. Um, it doesn't think evil. It, it's not vindictive. It doesn't hold grudges. It's not a blind eye to problems, but it's not bloodthirsty. It doesn't give room to bitterness. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in all things. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, the Bible says. It doesn't rejoice or revel in failure of someone else's failure. It's long, it, it's, um, it doesn't rejoice when someone else fails. It rejoices when someone else succeeds. This is all what charity does. Well, what it doesn't do, I should say. Now, here's some things what it does do. Quickly, number one, it rejoices. And this is all of the First Corinthians 13. I encourage you to read it when you get a chance. Um, it rejoices in truth, God's truth. It's not in the world's truth, in God's truth. It beareth all things. It persists. It prevails. That's what it means. It persists. It prevails. It believeth all things. It forgives. It has a forgiving attitude. It gives the benefit of the doubt. Well, I can't believe Tim would do such and such. I don't really think that's what Tim would do. I'm going to give Tim the benefit of the doubt so I can find out for myself. Then you find out it is, forgive him. Right? Because it's probably true. Um, verse number four, hope with all things. It's not giving up on someone or something. You know what? They, they did mess up. But you know what? I'm going to pick on Brother Jeremy. He said I could. <laughs> Brother Jeremy. I pick on Brother Jeremy all the time too. Um, he's not a deacon anymore, so I can do this. I'm not getting in trouble. But um, in his mother-in-law's years, I can get double-backed. Brother Jeremy makes a lot of mistakes, and he'll admit to it. 
but you know what? He's got a lot of redeeming qualities, and he always makes, he always makes right on his mistakes. And he told me, he gave me a list of la- a laundry list of mistakes, and he spelt half of them wrong. But, um, but, <laughs> but not giving up on someone, you know? Um, endureth all things. He put up with patience, having long suffering. Charity never faileth, it never expires, it doesn't ever fall short. Never falls short. 1 Corinthians 13 is in a chapter about love. It's about charity. It's not about marriage. It's about proper decorum within a church. It's how to love each other more. 1 Corinthians 13 is a recipe for the local church, how to love each other more. How to look across the aisle and learn how to support one another more. In 2023, when the world is getting more crazy, or as I like to tell my girls, cray-cray. When it's getting even more insanity, and it seems like the, the, when you think the world can't get any more, any more insane or any more ridiculous, it turns the page and it gets more ridiculous. And I just, I, I just, not surprised anymore. I just, I'm not surprised anymore. It's like, what is this? You can't make it up in a movie. It's like, this is crazy. But as in a church, I'm glad we have a place, a safe place, and I mean it in, in, a, in a good way. We have a place where we're the sanctuary from the world. The world is locked out. We're able to come together, get encouraged, be edified, strengthened, renewed, bear one another's burdens, strengthen one another, equip one another, lay our burdens here, pray with, you, we'll pray with each other, equip each other, and go back and do it again. And I want to find a ways to love you as a church, love our assembly, and love the Lord more through Anchor Baptist Church this year. And I believe 1 Corinthians 13 is a great recipe for it. Let's go ahead and pray. Pastor. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to us to teach and preach. Lord, I pray you'd take this simple lesson and apply it to our hearts and lives. I pray that would help us give us action steps and purpose to put it to practice in our life this week, even now. We thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand our feet, and we'll just have a short hymn of invitation, a great lesson on charity. We always need to be reminded of loving one another. Just like was mentioned in Sometimes even in our marriage where, you know, we, we find ourselves lacking. And uh, there's room to grow, room to be reminded, room to do better in those areas. As the piano plays, we'll just have a short hymn of invitation. to a close and uh, 
again, appreciate your faithfulness being in the house of the Lord. And we got about we got about just under ten minutes, and uh, you got time to to get around, fellowship with one with another, maybe visit the bathroom, maybe uh, get kids to class or whatever you need to do, and uh, and then we'll start our next service here in about about eight minutes or whatever that is. All right, God bless. <laughs>